Well, hello. You're listening to Sean of the South, and I'm your host, Sean Dietrich. This episode brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition in my family, and by Folklore Brewing and Meadry, the best beer in Alabama. Visit FolkloreBrewingAndMeadry.com. What you're about to hear is an episode recorded this past year as we've been traveling around the southeast in the U.S., recorded in Texas. Special guests, the Slocan Ramblers, Ontario, Canada's finest bluegrass group, with Frank Evans on the banjo, Adrian Gross on the mandolin, Daryl Poulson on guitar, and Charles James on the bass. You don't want to miss it. Also tonight, I tell a story about a simple statue which sits on my desk, and I read a poem which I entitle Ode to a Taco Truck. Let's have a listen. Listening to Sean of the South. Coming to you live from the Lone Star State. This episode brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition in my family, and by Folklore Brewing in Mebury. With special guests tonight, Canadian bluegrass band, the Slocan Ramblers, everybody. Somebody, I'm your guy. Just hurry and come over, Mama. Made apple turnovers together on the Saturday night. looking host. <laughs> the first people came to this land, this area that is now Texas, at least 16,700 years ago, and their arrival marks the beginning of the Paleolithic era. Texas was a different world in the Paleolithic era. For one thing, Willie Nelson was just being born. <laughs> earliest Texans lived as hunters and gatherers and they shared this landscape with ice age animals including woolly mammoths, cave lions, giant sloths, and dire wolves. Thousands of years later, Native American tribes including the Akokisa, the Kronkawa, and the Mogolon, and the Comanche lived on this land. Spanish settlers promoting the spread of a militant brand of Christianity called themselves missionaries 
and they were some of the first Europeans to live in what is now Texas, and they became the first descendants of the hard-shell Southern Baptists. In 1821, Mexico took control of this land. And this area came to be called Coahuila y Texas. But in 1835, settlers had had enough. They'd been living in this province. By that time, it was often just called Texas. They decided to fight for the honor and the independence of this glorious state. And they started the Texas Revolution. The rebels suffered a terrible defeat by the Mexican army in 1836 at the Battle of the Alamo, a mission in San Antonio, but the loss only inspired the settlers to fight on with a cry, remember the Alamo. Many, many Texans joined the rebel army and were willing to kill for this land. And as you can see, it paid off because Mexico gave up and you can still see this fight to the death, tooth and nail spirit at any Texas bowl game. <laughs> Texas became independent in 1836, fending off hostile tribes and Mexican troops, but it was almost impossible for a tiny country about the size of France to to keep their, their borders secure. So Texas joined the United States in 1845, and they weren't real happy with it because in 1861 they left the Union and rejoined after the Civil War ended in 1870. Scholars have put it this way when they talk of Texas. Texas is like the hokey pokey champion of the United States. They put their whole self in, and they take their whole self out. <laughs> How did Texas get its name? How did Texas get its name? Well, it's a long story, but I have condensed it into about 25 words. It was around 1540 in the area that is now known as East Texas, somewhere around modern-day Galveston. The Spanish explorers met the Cado tribe on the shore. Cado, uh, the Cado called the Spanish Texas, Texas, meaning friends or allies. Today, nearly 500 years later, the friendly spirit of Texas is alive and well. And let me tell you, you can feel it here in this state. In every taco joint, every barbecue joint, beer joint, honky-tonk, and church house. In short, Texas just feels good, and we are proud to be here today. <laughs> now we're going to bring up here on stage the Slocan Ramblers, everybody. The Slocan Ramblers. Everything I had. Right. 
There is a marvelous institution in this wonderful state which rarely gets its due. And I have composed a little poem, and I'd like to read it for you, if you have time. <laughs> Let's get our band here. To... Ode to a taco truck. <laughs> I saw it standing there, way off in the distance, serving a long line of customers who were all as hungry as elephants. People stood single file, waiting for hours and hours on end and more, just to taste the miracle, which is tacos al pastor. The cook was small and portly, his apron stained in red and green. He introduced his wife, named Blanca, who was the taco queen. Blanca asked me what I wanted to order, only she said, ¿Qué quieres pedir? I answered the only way I knew how, and said, May I please have a beer? She smiled and gave me a long neck that was called a Shinerbach. <laughs> I ordered tacos al pastor and lengua, which I believe is tongue. I ordered what Blanca called a steak, for she said a steak was voted number one. I ordered tacos de tripa, which is a cow stomach, Blanca says. I ordered tacos de cabeza. Blanca says, trust me, senor. You don't want to know what that is. <laughs> and then I waited at a picnic table in the dry Texan air. I saw people come from miles around to try this Tex-Mex fair. And you know, everyone was socializing and they were really getting along. Nobody was arguing or fussing and nobody seemed to care which side was right or wrong. One by one, order numbers were called, and American people got their food. And I watched these people eat, and I fell into a very good mood. Although, I was afraid my number had been skipped over. I thought Blanca forgot I was here. So I did what any sane man would do. I got up and got me another beer. I waited and waited longer to see if my food would come, but it never did, and so I was no longer having any fun. But then, just before I finished my very last complimentary corn chip, Blanca emerged from the back of the truck, carrying enough food to sink a ship. <laughs> because you order so much food, she said, we take longer on your order. But here is the best tacos you will find, this side of the border. There were tacos of every color, maybe 50 or 60 there. Then Blanca looked at me sincerely and said, you must start eating this one here. It was a taco with carne asada, topped with cilantro and cebolla. And I merely took one bite and swallowed and I exclaimed, oh yeah. 
Blanca smiled and reached into her back pocket. She removed a phone and gave her screen a touch. She said, may I take your picture, sir? Cause no gringo ever ordered this much. <laughs> so she filmed and snapped my photos as I gorged myself with food. And try as I have yet, I don't remember ever feeling quite this good. I ate two tacos, three tacos, four and five and 10. And I was able to eat a lot and somehow fit every bite in. The waitresses and the cooks were watching me lose control. They watched in rapt amazement as I shoved food into my taco hole. <laughs> but oh, the taste of tacos. Oh, it was food better than most. It was the taste of a thousand Texan summers, of senoritas and vaqueros. It was more than just spices on mere meat, more than the heat in my mouth. It was the flagship food of the largest state in the North or in the South. It was a million generations of mothers, fathers, daughters, and sons who all prepare food that is not only fit for queens and kings, but for every single one. It's peasant food to the elite. But to us, it's the food of the gods. For one simple taquito with onions and cilantro is enough to inspire sheer awe. But I can hear you asking, what is a taco? I hear some of you out there say. Well, I'll explain to you if I may. The word taco is quite new. It comes from the 18th century when Mexican men mined for silver in the mountains in a heated, battered fury. They placed gunpowder into strips of paper and rolled them up. They tucked these gunpowder rolls into slabs of drilled rock. They rolled explosives that were called taquitos. And pretty soon, taquitos were what made the mountainsides go boom. But for lunch, the miners, they rolled organ meat into a single corn tortilla. It was portable food that others called tacos de mineros, and a pretty dang good idea. But tacos are even older than this, than workers in the mines. The first tacos known to North America were here before the Spanish had even arrived. Ancient Mexicanos filled tortillas with entrails and organs. It was more than just a meal. It was food that was off the rails. Everyone loved them throughout history. Dignitaries and princes, famous people, and even you and me. The taco was first introduced into America, however, in the year 1905, when Mexican migrants worked on the railroads and they ate the food that was packed by their wives. This food was a curiosity among other workers with their hammers to swing. What is that you're eating? Said their friends, all amused. While the humble Mexicanos fanned their mouths from hot spices that were used. <laughs> and by the 1920s, the organ meat was eventually replaced by American protein, such as chicken, fish, or a steak. But sadly, 
We Americans could not help it. We just had to screw up a good thing. And so we added lettuce and cheese and even sour cream. And more inventive Americans screwed up the taco shell. They made it yellow and crispy and deep fried and U-shaped. And then they invented Taco Bell. Ask any Texan, Taco Bell is a godless creation, about as Texican as Burger King. But leave it up to Americans to screw up such a wonderful, sacred thing. And just like other beauties we've screwed up, the taco concept has become quite obscured. But I promise you, one visit to a taco truck and all your disillusions will forever be cured. For there I sat eating tacos until I was about to burst. Until Blanca looked at me and said, oh, but he has not tried the worst. But she didn't really mean the worst, you see. She actually meant the best. It's just that Americans like you and me must frequently have our comfort zones put to the test. She gave me one of the tacos de cabeza, and here is what she said. This taco is very good, senor, but you should know, this meat is from the cow's head. <laughs> well, I almost couldn't eat it, especially when I saw the eyeball. <laughs> but I decided I would be a good sport. Blanca had not failed me, after all. So I closed my eyes, and I took a bite. You know, I figured, hey, why not? Every other taco I'd eaten that day had been world-class and definitely hit the spot. It was eating food that was fit for a dream. And not once during my excursion did I squirm or gag or squeam. You see, the humble taco truck is rarely given its proper amount of credit. But here within this poorly written poem, I decided that I would try to give it. I ate and ate and ate some more until the sun began to fall. I ate until the crowd had thinned and the staff gathered round me had become rather small. And Blanca simply gave me more nuclear hot sauce, which should have come with a fire marshal's warning. And before I finished my last taco, I overheard her whisper, he'll be very sorry in the morning. as much as me she cried so when I left her I like to break her heart and if ever I can find her no more we will part she's the sweetest little rosebud that Texas ever knew her eyes are bright as diamonds 
You sparkle like the dew You can talk about your clementine And sing of Rose and Lee But the yellow rose of Texas Is the only girl for me Where the Rio Grande is flowing Starry skies are bright She walks along that river In the quiet summer night I know that she remembers When we parted long ago And I promise to return And not to leave her so Well, now I've got to find her for my heart is full of woe we'll do them things together like we did so long ago we'll play that guitar gaily she'll love me like before and that yellow rose of texas shall be mine forevermore I got to find her For my heart is full of woe We'll do the things together Like we did so long ago We'll play that guitar gaily She loved me like before And that yellow rose of Texas Shall be mine stage, the Slocan Ramblers, everybody, the Slocan Ramblers. Won't you give me six minutes of your precious time? And if you give me six minutes, I'll give you ten of mine. I know in those Passing through the corner of my eye Oh, the prettiest thing to ever come rambling by Oh, to ever come rambling by Well, I'm sitting on the grass all alone with the hill to climb Won't you give me six minutes of your precious time? If you give me six minutes, I'll give you ten of mine I know in those moments you can learn that I'll be true Along with you. Now 
another moment is a lifetime past and gone. Earth to dust, dust to crown, and the past just moves along, and the past just moves along. Well, the earth spins under our feet, and I'll do you no wrong. Won't you give me six minutes of your precious time? If you give me six minutes, I'll give you ten of mine. I know in those moments you can learn that I'll be true. Won't you give me six minutes just to sit alone with you? This portion of our show is brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition in my family dating back to my granddaddy who once said the best cure for idle hands was to build something. So keep your hands sharp with a case knife because according to my grandmother, there is no sin more grievous than having idle hands. She would take any child with idle hands and send him or her out to the yard to gather firewood or do some sort of busy work and she herself never had idle hands, especially when a child misbehaved when her idle hands connected with your idle butt. <laughs> this portion of our show also brought to you by Tennessee Peanuts. Tennessee Peanuts. Are you feeling tired, anxious, or unhappy? Do you have frequent bouts of forlorn complacency and existential angst that leaves you exhausted, drained, grumpy, depleted, and downright despondent? Try Tennessee Peanut Company's Down Home Peanuts. 10 out of 12 doctors recommend Tennessee Peanuts to aid digestion, increase circulation, and improve well-being overall. Tennessee Peanut Company brings you an array of roasted peanut flavors to suit all your body's essential peanut needs as identified by the American Medical Association. So you can burn your tongue on some Nashville's sweet and spicy peanuts or satisfy your sinful needs with doubly dipped chocolate peanuts. Enjoy flavors like Cajun Bayou Bites, Honey Roasted Chipotle, Traditional Salty, Sea Salt, or Cracked Pepper. And when you have room in your belly, try some sweet, sweet classic peanut brittle. You can trust me on this, your pancreas will thank you. <laughs> the Tennessee Peanut Company, for all your peanut needs, open 24 hours of the morning, day, or night, in time of day. Visit the Tennessee Peanut Company at Tennessee Peanut. Com. And now, if you would, let's bring up here the Slocan Ramblers, everybody. The Slocan Ramblers. Mm -hmm. 
Well, a few days ago, I was sitting at my desk in my little office. It's a little, little office. It's extremely disorganized. It's really just a room in my house that looks like it was involved in an explosion in a book factory. <laughs> I've got a lot of books hanging around. A lot of books that have been given to me and that I've collected over the years. Now they're all on the walls and they're not organized, they're just disorganized. And I have a desk that is covered in clutter and junk and various coffee mugs that have been there since roughly the Carter administration. <laughs> and I have a bunch of guitars that I have no business keeping, but I keep them anyway because they've been with me for so long. I've got my old Gibson guitar that I got when I was a kid and I've got an old guitar that used to belong to my daddy and I've got a cheap guitar somebody gave me as a gift that sits beside my desk so that when I'm supposed to be writing columns I will pick up this guitar and I will finger through a song I have no business plan this is the life of a writer <laughs> and on my desk alongside all this junk is this statue and it's 14 inches tall and it is Superman. Superman is looking at me with these eyes that are narrow slits and he's got shoulders that are about the size of granite boulders, biceps that are bigger than a human thigh and he's got this set of abs that looks better than Jesus on the cross in a Catholic church. <laughs> it is a, a statue that's been with me a long, long time. When I was 11 years old, my father was freshly dead. He died by suicide, and it leaves you with quite a mark on your, on your life as as a kid, you're kind of an outsider, you're a freak is what you are. Because not many in my circle knew anybody who had ever done anything that atrocious. And my father had made the front page of the newspaper because he went out in quite a splash. He, he went out in a very dramatic way. 11 years old, that was a pivotal time for me. I was a, I was a chubby child. Actually, I was just fat. No, it's okay. You can laugh. It's, uh, <laughs> in fact, because I was chubby, I had a gift of being funny because all chubby boys are inherently funny. They can say anything and do anything, and, and people will laugh. You could open up the Bible and read the 23rd Psalm, and you could have them roll on the floor and pee in their pants. <laughs> Now, I have recalled myself as being chubby when I, when I tell my story, because chubby sounds so much better than fat, but fat was the actual word that was used upon me by the doctor. When I went to go get my physical before school, the doctor looked at me and said, good God, this boy is fat. And then he paused and he lit another unfiltered camel. <laughs> But he was right, I was, I was chubby. And so every year before school, my mother would take me to the Sears store and we would buy me some special chubby boy pants. 
I don't know if any of you are familiar, but in the Sears store, in the very back of the store, to the left of the dressing rooms, to the right of the electric chair, <laughs> there's a rack of clothes specially designed for plump young men, and this brand of clothing has a name which has caused more psychological damage to young males in America than any other thing that we have to deal with as a society. And I'm, of course, talking about husky <laughs> pants. If you were to wear a pair of jeans manufactured by the Sears Corporation under the name Husky, you had this little paper patch above your right butt cheek. <laughs> and this patch was, was brown paper, just like they had on the Levi's and on the Lee jeans and on the Wranglers. It said Husky. Just in case anybody walking behind you ever had any doubt. <laughs> so my mother got me into the blazer and we were driving along to Sears to get me some new pants because I'd grown out of my other ones. And by grown out of my other ones, that was both ways, not just up ways, but sideways. <laughs> and I sat looking out the window and we drove to town and I looked at all these kids that I knew and they kind of looked back at me. Nobody really invited me to play with them anymore. It was kind of a, a different time in my life. There were friends that I was very, very close with who just kind of, you know, faded from, from my social scene. In fact, I had no social scene. I was just kind of adrift. I was alone out there. And we got to the shopping mall these wonderfully huge places that used to be so popular. There's a lot of kids out here in this audience who probably don't know what shopping malls are. I don't know if you have them, but back then we had these complexes that were roughly the size and shape of a small city. You could, you could get lost and stranded in a mall and survive for hundreds and hundreds of years because they had everything you needed, everything you needed. They had food courts with food that nobody in their right minds would eat, served by clinically depressed cashiers. <laughs> they had stores that were just pumped full of girly stuff. They had masculine stores. There was a little something for everybody. And it was an exciting place to be. And as you walked in, you could see the old ladies who were making large circles around the mall to get in their steps for the day because the mall was a place where people would go to exercise. And you'd see teenagers, and teenagers would be posturing among themselves, trying to, to make a move on the opposite sex to impress their girlfriend or impress their boyfriend. You'd see clots of young men who were dressed in leather jackets being kind of rough, at least wearing rough looks on their faces. And you'd see girls walking in these clusters together with the hair up in ponytails and all these strange pieces of jewelry that were popular during that era and pants that were pleated because pleated pants were hotter than an oven back then. <laughs> and it was quite a place to be. There was a big fountain right up front, big fountain that just sat there and it just pumped out water through a little boy's mouth. He was a little cherub-looking boy standing atop this 
pillar and his mouth was open like he was whistling and out from his mouth came this fine stream of water that just poured out and into the water and people would pass by every now and then especially young people and they'd throw pennies into the water blink they'd watch it fall in and they'd make a wish and I sat at a bench while my mother told me to wait because she wanted to go in to the Yankee candle store and get high on scented candles. <laughs> and so I sat there on this little bench and I watched her walk into that store and I watched all the people walk by. And, and just up ahead was a comic book store. Now I'm a long time lover of comic books. Long time lover of comic books. And so I, I stood up and I walked to the comic book store. And I got inside and there was a smell inside this store that I just loved. It smelled like an explosion in a book factory. <laughs> I love the printed page. I love anything that is printed on pages. I don't know why. It's just a long-standing love affair that I have. You can put me in a bookstore, in a library, in a comic book warehouse, and I will find just pleasure sniffing the air. There's something miraculous about the smell of pages and paper and newsprint and ink printed on parchment. I love it. I got up to the, to the front desk and I was just looking around. There were stacks of comic books that were taller than grown men. And the entire walls of this store were, were adorned with shelves, some 10, 12, 13 shelves high. There were ladders that people were climbing on to get to various issues of comic books. And there was Spider-Man and there was Superman and Batman. And there were all these Archie comics that nobody in their right mind ever reads unless they have the flu. <laughs> and I just meandered through the aisles without any place to go, just looking at all these comic books. And as I got to one aisle, I looked in the right side of the aisle and the left side of the aisle, both towering above me, were completely filled with Superman comics. Oh, I love Superman. And I walked through the aisle all the way past the books to where I saw novelty items of Superman. There were little carved figurines. There were tiny chunks of kryptonite that were painted iridescent green. There were, there were volume books and encyclopedias of Superman knowledge. There was a Superman mask. And then I found this little 14 inch high statue staring at me. This little porcelain statue. It was expertly painted. And Superman's fists were clenched and he was holding a strong man pose in his wide stance. And as he was looking at me, it was almost as if he was he was speaking to me. And I just walked right up to him. He was eye level with me. His eyes were staring me right in the eyes. And I just stood there in rapt wonder, looking at Superman. 
Superman came to Earth in a large device that was made by his father that basically looked like a giant suppository. <laughs> and he was shot from the planet Krypton just as Krypton was imploding. And he sailed through the wilds of space until he got into the Earth's atmosphere. Krypton was underneath the red sun. And Superman was born underneath the red sun. His DNA was suited for the red sun. But as he came into our solar system, he was beneath the power of the yellow sun. And so as he was underneath the sunlight of our sun, the yellow star, his body underwent changes due to the photonucleic effect. Every cell, every molecule, every carbon and hydrogen atom, every electron in Superman's physical body was expanded and multiplied and practically jumped up in strength and endurance to the quantum level. He became a superhuman almost immediately, as quickly as you can draw a breath. His body underwent such changes as he developed x-ray vision, heat vision, the power of flight, superhuman speed, superhuman strength. And one little known ability he had that people often forget is he had super breath. Super breath could be used to blow on any object because of his increased lung capacity and he could freeze it right there in a cube of ice. Superman also had the power to go backward in time, which, was, which has only been done in a few different comics, wherein he would run around the world or fly around the world at such an incredible speed that his body turned into a blur. And this speed somehow caused the rotation of the earth to spin backward. This was a powerful individual. And I looked at him. You know, he had to feel like a freak sometimes. He had to. Clark Kent was an outsider. He was nothing like his buddies. He had all these strange things occurring in his body that made him a complete and total circus freak. And as I stared at this, I, I kind of felt some sort of sympathy on Clark Kent. He didn't ask for this. And as I was standing there staring, I heard this voice behind me, a female voice. She said, do you like that statue? And I turned, and it was my mother. She was standing there looking at me, and she had in a shopping bag approximately 47 Yankee candles. <laughs> I said, yeah, I like it. I shrugged my shoulders. She said, okay. She reached forward without even saying a word. She plucked that statue off the shelf, and she walked up to the clerk. She set it down on the desk. The statue, the clerk said, was $40. $40. My bicycle didn't even cost $40. In fact, I don't think I owned anything at that age that cost $40. My mother 
did not bite an eyelash. She reached into her pocketbook. She removed four crisp Alexander Hamiltons and placed them on the counter. And she said, we'll have it wrapped. Thank you very much. We took it home. And that little statue sat on my bed for years, right beside my bed, a little nightstand. And I looked at it a lot because that's what you do with statues. You just look at them. Sometimes in the middle of the night, I'd wake up and I'd see Superman standing beside my bed and I just had a nightmare. Nightmares were kind of common for me there for a period of time. And I'd see him looking at me with them clenched fist and them flexed arms. And I would stare at Superman in the dark. You know, nobody made Superman put on those red and blue pajamas. Nobody forced him to get out and save anybody. Nobody compelled him to save little kitty cats from trees or men from explosions in the mill or nobody made him go rescue that blonde in the swamp who was about to be eaten by crocodiles. <laughs> nobody held a gun to Superman's head and said, you have to help people. You have to rescue people. Clark Kent just decided he wanted to do it himself. And I've wondered about that. Why? Why did he decide that? Why did he fight for, for the little guy? Well, if you ask me, and I'm no expert, nobody knows what it feels like to be a freak, except a freak. Every time I sit down to my little computer to write my columns, to write my books or whatever, I look at that little statue, that 14-inch high piece of porcelain expertly painted with that giant red cape and those red boots and that brilliant canary yellow and red. And I look at him, and you know what I think? I think to myself, what he might be saying to me if he could talk. And maybe he's saying, you know what? You're a lot stronger than you think you are. Trust me on that. And I also think he's saying to me in a voice that's loud and clear, no matter how bad life gets, no matter how hopeless things look, you will never ever again in your life wear husky brown pants. Star State in Houston, Texas. This episode brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition in my family dating back to my granddaddy, who once said the best cure for idle hands was to build something. And by Folklore Brewing and Meadry, literally my favorite beer in Alabama, and I'm not just saying that. And by Tennessee Peanuts. TennesseePeanut.com. Special thanks to Kim Scotts, John Rainey, Silvio Centamore, Aaron Peters, Federico Hacchini on the guitar, and Alan Wright. And how about this band, huh? The Smoke Ramblers, everybody. Yeah.
bluegrass group. Frank Evans on the banjo, Adrian Gross on the mandolin, Daryl Poulson on guitar, and Charles James on the bass. Visit them and look up their stuff today. You will not regret it. How about a song to take us out? The Slocum Ramblers, everybody, the Slocum Ramblers. Mississippi heavy water blues.